Welcome to Insights with Sights, the symphony of scripture, a weekly podcast exploring the themes and contours of the weekly scripture readings. For more information about the podcast or to download the companion notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. We now join our host, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Seitz. We've come to the penultimate, the sixth Sunday of Easter this week, in which Ascension Day falls, 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Next Sunday is the final Sunday of Easter, just before Pentecost. And our readings for this Sunday come, as usual, from the Acts of the Apostles this week, chapter 10 the conclusion of the story of Cornelius's conversion, the fifth chapter of 1 John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, again, part of the farewell discourses of Jesus in that Gospel, and Psalm 98. As we've been observing the Acts of the Apostles, shows the Holy Spirit, the real main actor in that work, moving resolutely, mysteriously, and in ever-widening circles, beginning with the circle of Jews who have come up for Pentecost, upon whom the Spirit falls, who then return to their homes across the entire known world of the time. And as the narrative line of Acts unfolds from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, then to our lone black high official who's headed back to Sudan to tell of Jesus Christ, newly baptized and rejoicing as he goes, a God-fearer who has become a Christian. And today it is Cornelius's turn we know a good deal about the specifics of his religious life, so let's rehearse these as Acts provides them en route to today's brief lesson. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius too is a God-fearer and a high official, a centurion, we're told, in the Italian cohort, and he is commended in these terms a devout man who feared God with all his household, who gave alms liberally to the people, and who prayed constantly to God. And we learn his prayers and his benevolence are noted by the one God of Israel to whom he prays. They rise up to him like a memorial. Cornelius is to go find Peter, which he does with his servants and a devout soldier. They set out for Joppa from Caesarea. Next, we see Peter in prayer on the following day, and Peter receives a vision that perplexes him. Pondering it, the contingent from Cornelius arrives and beckons Peter to come and visit. Visit Cornelius, 
a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. The Spirit directs Peter to go, and so he does. When he arrives, Cornelius, well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, kneels before Peter and does obeisance. Peter's vision that he has received in prayer has prepared him to go ahead and enter. And so he bids Cornelius rise, who in turn promptly tells Peter of his own coordinated vision the day before. And in less than a hundred words, Peter responds with his story of Jesus, which he introduces with the words, for in every nation anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. Upon hearing his report, the Holy Spirit falls on all. And now we learn there are Jewish believers who have also accompanied Peter, and it is their turn to be amazed. For the same Holy Spirit manifesting himself, just as he did with the Jewish Christians, prompts Peter to baptize Cornelius and all on whom the Spirit has fallen. So it is that a devout God-fearer, a pious almsgiver, well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, becomes the first Gentile convert following the man from Cush, the high official like himself. This time, though, there are witnesses present, and they are bowled over by the Holy Spirit's claim on all who hear Peter's testimony. And Cornelius is not headed off to a distant land, but is and will remain based in Caesarea itself. He is, of course, no garden variety Gentile, any more than an official reading Isaiah in his chariot, coming up from worship in the temple. But he paves the way for just that development as we will read on in the coming chapters of Acts. And the Council of Jerusalem will evaluate this development, prophesied from long ago, and what it will mean, practically speaking, for the Jewish Christians themselves. It is striking, then, to hear the portion selected for this Sunday from the last chapter of 1 John. Everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Cornelius, those who heard Peter's report, upon whom the Spirit fell, the Ethiopian eunuch, and all those Gentiles whose numbers are building as the Spirit moves forth from the Jewish Pentecost gathering in chapter 1 through Samaria and finally to the ends of the earth with Paul in Rome itself as Luke's two-part story comes to an end. The life of faithful obedience testified to in Cornelius 
is front and center in Acts. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms liberally to the people, and prayed constantly to God. And as Peter, opening his preaching, made clear, in every nation anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. 1 John speaks of the Christian as one who does what Christ commands, whose commands are not burdensome but belong to a different sphere of life than the commandments of centurions or queens or high officials from Cush in this world. By this we know that we love God when we love him and obey his commandments. For the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God will conquer the world. He who believes Jesus Christ and believes on his name has overcome, has conquered the world, much in the same language as we find in the Gospel of John chapter 16 at the end, they are new men and women rejoicing on their way, filled with the Holy Spirit. This same Jesus Christ himself fulfilled all righteousness when he submitted to the baptism of John. He came by water in obedience to the commandment of God and he conquered the world not by water alone, but by water and the blood that gained his victory and our own. Traditionally, interpreters through the ages have seen here references, water and blood, to the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist in the church, which is an obvious enough extended sense. But the ground meaning is found in the literal beginning of water, baptism, and end, blood on the cross, of Jesus' coming. He came by water and by blood to save the world. We see a similar sort of statement in John's Gospel, where at the cross, the beloved disciple sees blood and water, not water and blood, but blood and water, pouring forth from the wounded side at Jesus' death. And in this, he sees a great significance, the blood which saves and the water of the Holy Spirit's releasing, rising up now within the beloved disciple to eternal life as he gives his testimony just as Jesus had promised in that same gospel to the Samaritan woman at the well, the water that would well up within her to eternal life. The order is different, as is the emphasis in 1 John, not water only, but water and blood. Yet one can see why patristic interpreters wanted to link the sacramental with the literal sense. And First John itself goes on to speak in the verse that follows our epistle portion for this morning, 
of the three together, water, blood, and spirit, baptism, death, and Holy Spirit, grounded in and flowing from Christ's earthly obedience. He writes, and the Spirit is the witness. Because the Spirit is the truth, there are three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. In our readings, we have strange and confusing commands issued in Acts to Philip last Sunday, to Cornelius this week, and to Peter as well. All are obedient. And from this obedience flows new life and ever-widening fellowship in Christ. Peter commands in our lesson this morning that water be brought and baptisms follow in the crowning moment of obedience, his obedience to the heavenly command he's received. His faith in the heavenly vision, to use the language of 1 John, overcomes the world. Just as the prophets had promised long ago, and the Holy Spirit enters in majesty and renewal. I have said these things that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be complete, Jesus says in our gospel reading for this Sunday. The faith that overcomes the world shows a world where commandments and joy are able to kiss one another as do truth and mercy in the Psalms. And in our Psalm for today, it's hard to keep up with the joy and singing and clapping and trumpeting and shouting, noise-making, ringing out, harping and rejoicing as nature breaks forth to respond to the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. A new song befitting the Holy Spirit's renewing and new world-making work. And all of this springs forth because the Lord Jesus has laid down his life for his friends. There is no greater love than this. And therefore, because he obeyed the command of his Father, so he commands us, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I have appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, as we see witnessed in the Ethiopian, in Peter, in Cornelius, and in all those in the widening circles of his flock and of those of another flock, he is bringing step by step by the Spirit's work into the kingdom he has come to give us. We hope you enjoyed Insights with Sights, the symphony of scripture. For archived episodes and notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. Thank you, and we hope you tune in again.
This podcast is a ministry of Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto.